This church is not about us. This church is not about me. This church is not about you. And this church is not even about reaching those outside of these walls. This, this church is, above all, about Jesus. I was excited when I saw that this was the passage that would be in front of us in the Gospel of John on Celebration Sunday 2023 because I could immediately see how we could profit from studying its message on the day when we pause to celebrate how wonderfully God has blessed our congregation for the last 131 years. On your birthday, it's easy to think it's all about you, right? Well, if the candles are for you, right? And while we have most certainly been blessed above all, above all, this church is not about us. It's about Jesus. Above all. You're going to hear me say those words over and over again this morning. Above all. I get them from verse 31, where it appears twice. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from above is above all. And as we shall see, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's study this passage closely and see how this comes out and think about how it applies to us today. Let's start in verse 22 and read through verse 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Now just stop there for just a second. This story takes place sometime after Jesus met with Nick at night. Some time has paused, some has passed since Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness and Jesus told him that he must be born again, that he must, be, he must believe in the lifted up son to have eternal life. Some time has passed and Jesus has taken his disciples on a team building retreat out into the countryside. And while they're there, they were also baptizing new disciples in Jesus's name. At the very same time, John the Baptist. Do you remember him? Jesus is baptizing with his disciples. And John is also baptizing with his disciples. They're west of the Jordan in a very wet place called Anon near Salim. Now, I think it's interesting, and I always point it out in our baptism classes, that it apparently takes a lot of water to baptize the right way. At least whenever you can get a lot of water, it's best to use a lot of water. John and his disciples are baptizing in this spot, verse 23, because there was plenty of water. He was a full immersion kind of a guy. No little sprinkling going on here. They don't call him John the Baptist for nothing, right? But John's not the only one baptizing now. Jesus is, at least through his disciples. They're baptizing under his authority. And it seems like there might be a competition Which team do you want to be on? Team John the Baptist or Team Jesus for baptizing? It might seem like a rivalry. In fact, I think John's disciples very much saw it that way. You could hear it as Keegan read, right? Look at verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial 
washing. Now, we don't know what this theological argument was about. It apparently doesn't actually matter, something to do with the relationship perhaps between baptism and ceremonial washings. What does matter is that apparently Jesus' name comes up during this theological debate. And John's disciples seem to be jealous for John's corner on the market. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. It's like the, it's like the employees at Wendy's saying, they're all going to McDonald's. You can just hear how concerned they are for their master. Teacher, remember that guy you pointed out back in chapter 1? That guy who some of us immediately started to follow after you pointed him out? Well, now he's baptizing. Can he do that? It looks like he's, like they say on social media, it looks like he's blowing up. Everyone's going to him. Now, I love how loyal they are to their leader. They clearly love him, and that can be a really good thing. But if they are truly upset about this, then they have truly missed their master's whole point. Rabbi, we call you notorious JTB. You're John the Baptist. Is it okay if this Jesus guy baptizes too? Now see how John responds to that and learn an incredible lesson in how to think about ourselves, how to think about our church. John just nails this. Look at verse 27. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. In other words, if I have anything good, it was a gift in the first place. If anybody came to me for baptisms, that was God doing that. That wasn't about me. If I have a blessing, it was a blessing I did not earn. If I have a wonderful position in the world, and he did. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. I didn't deserve that in the first place. I just received it from heaven. So I don't need to hold on to it desperately as mine by right. The Apostle Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians. He said to them, what do you have that you did not receive? Meaning nothing. And if you did did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? See, I love how humble John is here. John knows that if he's had a wonderful ministry, and he has, it might at any time be taken away from him. Well, it wasn't about him anyway, so he'll be fine. Our church has a wonderful history. This week on Tuesday, we had 13 folks show up for our membership seminar to find out about that. And Vera, one of our church historians, stood up and taught the history. She said, I've been a part of this church for 81 years. Wonderful history. Wonderful. But if we start to see the churches around us start to grow, and we don't, we should not get resentful or envious. We're not in a war with the other churches that claim Jesus Christ. You can only receive what is given you from heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves, disciples, can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. Remember that from chapter 1, John's testimony? They wanted to know who John thought he was, and he said he was the voice, right? 
I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. John knows he's just a voice. He's just the voice. And being the voice was just a gift given to him from heaven. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. He's just the voice. Jesus is the Lamb. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John was just on the scene to point his bony finger at Jesus. And the point of the pointing was not the pointer, but the person he was pointing at. Did you follow that? It was a little tricky when I wrote it. I'm like, did I get that right? The point of the pointing was not the pointer, but the person he was pointing at. So if his disciples were getting bent out of shape, that John was being eclipsed by Jesus, they were missing their master's whole point. So John uses a cultural illustration that they would all understand. He goes to marriage, to a wedding. Look at verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. I've got two points of application this morning, and here's number one. Rejoice in Jesus above all. This is a beautiful illustration, and it just sings. When you, when you think about it, it just sings. Who is the most important? Here's a little quiz for you this morning. Okay, you ready? Ready, Terry? Okay. Who is the most important woman at a wedding? The bride. The bride. A plus. That's easy, right? Who's the most important man at a wedding? This should be easy, too. The groom, right? It's not the officiating minister. It's definitely not the best man. It's the groom. That's why Jesus says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. That's how it is, and it's how it should be. Then he says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. Now, the closest thing we have in our culture to the friend who attends the bridegroom is the best man at an American wedding, okay? Now, most of the time, the best man in our weddings doesn't really have that much to do, right? I mean, show up, don't lose the ring, right? And maybe give a speech, right? Probably maybe calm the guy down, calm the groom down. That's about it. But the friend who attends the bridegroom in Jesus' day had a much bigger role than most best men do these days. In those days, this friend was a highly honored position who had numerous important functions at the wedding, including serving as a witness, contributing financially. There's there's what you ask your best man to do. How about you help pay for this? Having a prominent place in the festivities and providing general oversight and arrangement for the ceremony. He was almost responsible for the whole thing. He was kind of like the agent in charge. Might be what we would call the wedding planner. That was the best man's job. And he had responsibilities for the bride too in terms of making sure that she was ready to be presented to the groom at the wedding. At a lot of these weddings, it was this guy that presented the bride to the bridegroom. Like in our weddings, we often have like the father of the bride walk her down the aisle. In, in, the, in many of their weddings, it was this guy's job to say, 
Here she is. It would not be hard to imagine a guy in that role that thought he was the most important man at the wedding, right? And honestly, that would be a very important role, wouldn't it? You don't have that guy, maybe the wedding doesn't go off. There's no shame in being the best man. Unless, unless the best man started thinking that he was more important than the bridegroom. What if he decided he wanted the bride for himself? There was actually laws in Israel saying, under no circumstances could that one marry that one. If this guy is doing his job, he's waiting to hear the bridegroom say, I do. He's waiting to hear the bridegroom say, I take you as my lawfully wedded wife. He's listening for the bridegroom, for the groom to be so happy he's married. He's doing everything he can to bring these two together on their big day. So the groom says, I am happy above all men today because we are now married. And then, and only then, is the groom's friend happy, right? Up until that point, he's probably nervous about the whole thing. Oh, is this thing going to come off without a hitch? I mean, with one big hitch, right? And then it happens. And he hears that joy in the groom's voice and he says, now I'm happy. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. Who's John in this equation? He's the friend of the bridegroom. Hey, he knows it. Who is the bridegroom in this, in this analogy? It's Jesus. So who's the bride? It's the people of God. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. Israel was often pictured as the bride of Yahweh. And in many ways, the story of the Old Testament is a story of a wedding to come where the bride and the bridegroom are united at last. The Messiah is like a a long-expected bridegroom that has been promised to come for his bride. And now that the New Testament has come, we know that the bride is more than just Israel. It's now Jew and Gentile together in a new thing called the church. We all who believe are a part of the bride of the Messiah. So here's the picture. John is just so happy that he's brought people to the Messiah. He can fall off the face of the earth. He's gotten the people of God ready and presented them as a bride for their long-awaited groom. Doesn't matter What happens to him? Nothing could make him happier. That joy is mine and it is now complete. This is what I came for. This is my whole point. He must become greater. I must become less. My ministry is not about me. It's about Jesus. You see how we could all learn from that? There's no reason to get jealous for ourselves or for our ministries. If we see other churches or ministries flourish, we should just be glad the bride is coming to the bridegroom. Assuming the bride is coming to the bridegroom, we should have nothing but joy because it's not about us. We should be content and humble and thankful for any role that we can play, including just watching and cheering. And anytime we do play a role, however big, we shouldn't get a big head about it. 
Because we didn't do anything to earn or deserve it in the first place. It was given us from heaven. Notice that becoming less does not mean that we shrivel up or we become increasing, increasingly like nothing. It means we're increasingly blessed by Jesus. He gives us more and more. We receive more and more. We're not impoverished by becoming less. There's no shame in becoming less. We're enriched because we're just not that important. See, John the Baptist was truly great. You know how I know that? Jesus said so. Jesus said, among those born of women, that's about all of us last time I checked, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But part of his greatness was his humility, recognizing that it was not about him. Even he was not about him. John's ministry was not about John. He was about Jesus. I think there's a good word for us here to not get too attached to our spiritual leaders. For example, don't get too attached to me. It's Pastor Appreciation Month, and I am so grateful for all of your expressions of appreciation. Thank you for the cards and the calls and the messages. They are very encouraging. Thank you for sending Heather and me to the Pastors and Wives Retreat next weekend, especially in a year when you gave us that incredibly restorative sabbatical. Thank you. We feel very, very loved. But please do not give me any of the love and loyalty that Jesus deserves. When I came back from sabbatical, I came up with this sentence to describe how it felt. People say, well, how was sabbatical? And I'd said, amazing, restorative. And they'd say, how is it to be back home with your people? I said, it's wonderful. I said this, here's my sentence. They missed me, but they didn't need me. They missed me, but they did not need me. And that's exactly how it should be. You don't need me. You need Jesus. I'm not the point. I'm just one of the friends of the groom pointing you to him. See, often pastors get a Messiah complex and begin to think that everything is all about them. And churches can make the mistake about their pastors too. We can think, I'm going on Sunday to go see pastor. No, no. John the Baptist shows us the right way. He must become greater. I must become less. And how fitting that those are the last words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He must become greater. I must become less. Goes off stage. John wasn't jealous. He was joyful. Rejoice in Jesus above all. Now don't worry, I've got no plans to go anywhere. But if I were to leave this church or to die, would you continue on? I sure hope so. Because this church is not about me. It's not even about you. This church is about Jesus above all. And we should be like John the Baptist doing our little part to introduce the bride to the bridegroom. We will find our greatest joy when we see the people of God united to the Son of God. This last spring, we had two baptisms that I didn't get to do. Do you remember that back in April? Joel Michaels did them with their dads. 
It was the Sunday right before our sabbatical began. I loved the symbolism of that. This church was doing baptisms. You didn't, me to do, didn't need me to do that. They were the first baptisms in 25 years that I have witnessed at Lance Free Church instead of doing the dunking myself. Here's how I felt. So happy. Jealous in a good way because I want to be a part of that, but not in a bad way. Like, they think they can do that without me? Just super happy to see someone taking that step of public identification with Jesus. I'm looking forward to more of that sort of thing. Less of me. More of Him. There may come a day when this church does not exist anymore. And that'll be okay. As long as we're faithful in our day, that'll be okay. Does anybody know the names of the churches in Sweden where the 10 charter members of our congregation came from? Do they still exist? Does anybody know? The point is that they passed on the faith to the next generation. They pointed the bride to the bridegroom. They were the best men bringing the gospel to this area and birthing this church which has been faithful to that gospel for 131 years. The point of this church is not to keep existing, but as long as it exists, to keep pointing beyond ourselves to our Savior. Amen? Let me say that again. The point of this church is not to keep existing, but as long as it exists, to keep pointing beyond ourselves to our Savior. And as, as people come into a life-changing relationship with Him, like we said at the top of the service, we will rejoice and our joy will be complete. Here's why. Because Jesus is above all. We've reached verse 31. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth, that's John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Now, is it bad to be from the earth? No. Or to speak as one from the earth. That's John. It's good. But it's nothing compared to being the one who comes from heaven. Jesus is superior to everyone and everything. The one who comes from above is above all. Do we act like that's true? All too often, we, set, we let so many other things, including our own selves, take that top spot. We know that Jesus is above all. Is Jesus above all right now for us? Up here. What's in this slot? Now, I'm not asking, is church in this slot? Okay, not asking that, because it should not be. Should not be. Jesus goes in this slot. Now, for some of you, for you to have Jesus where he belongs, you're going to need to move church up the list in your priorities, because the church exists for us to help each other put Jesus where he belongs. We exist to help each other grow in a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ through worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service. We don't just put Jesus above all on our own. 
We help each other to do it. That's why we're here. But we don't put church up here. That's where Jesus belongs. In fact, that's where he is. And our lives should show it. What are you tempted to put in that top spot? I'll bet you know the answer to that even if you don't want to admit it. What needs to be dethroned so that Jesus is seen to be where he rightfully is? The one who comes from heaven is above all. But so many do not recognize it. That's the point of verse 32. He, Jesus, testifies to what he has seen and heard in heaven. But no one accepts his testimony. Like John 1.11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In general, he's rejected by humanity. But, verse 33, the man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. God's not a liar. Jesus is not a liar. Everything he said is true. And therefore, it makes all the difference. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, speak the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. (laughs) Wow, what a statement. Now we're getting into the deep things of God. Now we're seeing what what Jesus is above all. God the Father has given God the Son, God the Spirit, without limit. What a sentence that is. God the Father has given God the Son, God the Spirit, without limit. We, don't, we can't even begin to imagine what that means. Jesus didn't just have the Spirit given to him to some extent. Like one of those Old Testament prophets or, or like John the Baptist himself. When Jesus saw, when John saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove and it said resting on him. Remember that in chapter 1? Resting on him. There was no limit to that gift. There wasn't like, okay, a little bit of spirit. Okay, that's enough for that purpose. It's the full spirit and forever. No doling him out. No measuring out the spirit. But pouring out the full spirit of God on the Son of God. In fact, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. He's entrusted the whole kit and caboodle to Him. Of course He's above all. The Father loves Him. The Father cherishes Him. The Father adores Him. He's the monogenes. He's the one and only. When He poured out His Spirit on Him without limit, He said, This is My Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. The Son is supreme in the Father's affection. Of course he's above all. The Father loves him above all. So that when we read, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, we realize what a gift that was. And so above all, we should believe in him. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Number two and last, believe in Jesus above all. Because faith in Jesus leads to life. 
That's been the whole point of this book, right? It's written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. Here it is again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Has. Did you catch that? Present tense? Don't miss that. If you believe in the Son right here and right now, you have eternal life right here and right now. It says for all who believe. Believing in Jesus is where the life is. But rejecting Jesus means death. Look again. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. That's the perishing that we talked about last week in John 3.16. God's wrath is his holy anger over against sin and evil. And here it says that his wrath remains. Doesn't fade away. He doesn't get tired in his holy anger. It doesn't expire. It's permanent and unending which is almost unthinkable, which is why we must heed this warning. Don't miss the warnings of the Gospel of John. The invitations to faith are so wonderful. We must take them up. But it's either or, not both and. Ultimately, there are only two roads with two vastly different destinations. At the end of the road of faith in Jesus, there is life. But at the end of the road of rejecting Jesus, there's nothing left but God's holy wrath. And it remains. The choices are stark but clear. I hope that everyone here believes in the Son. I hope that everyone here has heard what the Son has done for us. He has become one of us and then died for us in our place for our sins on the cross. And He didn't stay dead. He came back to life to give us life and life forevermore. Believe in Jesus above all. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then we invite you to do so right here and right now. And if you do, then you'll have eternal life right here and right now. Family, we need to get this message out to the world. This is too important to keep to ourselves. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We've got to tell people about Jesus above all. That's got to stay our, our main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Because this church is not the main thing. You and I are not the main thing. Even reaching the world out there is not the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. This church is not about us. It's about Jesus above all.